From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 294 for the week of May 22nd, 2014. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan a perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I'm your host Tom Bell and I'm joined by our Disneyland team, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulatto-Willie, and Michael Bowling. In this segment, Michael continues his lead up to next year's 60th anniversary of Disneyland. Michael? Thank you, Tom. In our last episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, Walt Disney had a dream. It was a dream of a place where children and parents could have fun together. The more Walt dreamed of a magical park, the more imaginative and elaborate it became. The original plans for the park were on eight acres next to the Burbank Studios where his employees and families could go to relax. World War II put those plans on hold. During the war, Walt had time to come up with new ideas for his magical park, and it was soon clear that eight acres wouldn't be enough. Finally, in 1953, he had Harrison Buzz Price of the Stanford Research Institute conduct a survey for a 100-acre site outside of Los Angeles. He needed space to build rivers, waterfalls, and jungles. He would have flying elephants and pirate ships flying off to Neverland, a fairy tale castle, a western wilderness frontier, and a scenic railway, all inside a magic kingdom he called Disneyland. The only guidelines Walt Disney gave to Buzz Price for the site was that it would have to be a minimum of 100 acres at no more than $4,500 per acre, preferably flat and with one owner. Ideally, it would be somewhere between Chatsworth and Pomona on the north and Tustin and Balboa on the south. The location should not be near the beach because Walt did not want to attract the barefoot beach crowd. Buzz identified 43 possible sites after considering a number of factors including utilities, accessibility, topography, temperature, rainfall, and smog. The list of 43 was scaled down to four sites. The search for the best spot finally ended in rural Anaheim, California, with the purchase of a 100-acre orange grove near the junction of the Santa Fe Freeway, I-5, and Harbor Boulevard, and just a 30-minute drive from downtown Los Angeles. Teenager Ron Dominguez was curious as to what the men were doing in the area. He had noticed strange cars passing by slowly while the occupants studied his mother's orange groves. Ron's mother was born on the property in 1898. For more than four decades, the Dominguez family had tended the orange groves after converting them over from walnut groves. The family learned the strangers were looking to purchase the Dominguez property along with the adjacent groves of 16 other landowners. Quietly, the property was purchased, despite press releases announcing Disney had chosen land in the San Fernando Valley, 50 miles away from the Dominguez property, for his special project. For Ron Dominguez, this would bring about a significant change in the direction of his life. His family home would remain as a Disneyland administration building for many years, and Ron would later join Disneyland and eventually become vice president of park operations. Walt was present with his hand-picked staff on July 12, 1954, for the groundbreaking. The landscape designers had inspected every tree on the property with the purpose of saving as many as possible for the design of the park. Earlier that year, landscaper Bill Evans and his brother Jack had met with Walt Disney to talk about the park. Walt immediately offered them the job of landscaping Disneyland. The Evans brothers took Walt to their home to give Walt an idea of what could be done. In a canyon near their home, they created various environments, including a tropical jungle, an old English garden, and an area created to look wild. Later the same week, Walt took the Evans brothers to the Disneyland property to look at the trees. 
Bill Evans saw they were knocking down trees in the parking lot and immediately stopped it. He figured replacing mature trees would cost at least $500 each. Evans took a transparency of the master plan and placed it over an aerial photo of the property and marked all the trees not in the middle of a street or in the rivers of America and tried to work around them. Evans devised a foolproof method to sort the trees. Ribbons were tied to each tree, with green ribbons indicating trees that should be spared and red ribbons indicating trees needing to be cleared. On groundbreaking day, the bulldozer roared across the terrain, leveling trees no matter what color ribbons were tied to them. The bulldozer operator was colorblind. Over 12,000 orange trees were removed. As part of the land acquisition agreements for Disneyland, Walt promised to allow the Clausens family to keep their home at the northwest corner of Cerritos Avenue and Harbor Boulevard for their daughters. As a result, they were the first family to sell their property. Whilst clearing the site, the construction crews stacked orange trees and lit them on fire. The wind changed and the house burnt to the ground, much to the embarrassment of the Disney group. It was an inauspicious beginning for Disneyland. On August 26, 1954, McNeil Construction was selected to build the park. The first challenge was to prepare the site by moving hundreds of tons of soil to create rivers, mountains, and the earthen berm surrounding the park to screen out the real world. An official groundbreaking ceremony was scheduled for August 25th, but it was canceled due to a threatened demonstration. An initiative on the Anaheim ballot annexing the Disneyland property was not prop- popular with a small minority of property owners. The annexation was critical to building Disneyland of, of sewer connections and the benefit of working with Anaheim's responsive local leaders rather than con- the countrywide supervisor, the countywide supervisor. Anaheim prevailed, and Disneyland became a part of Anaheim on January 5, 1955, and the city grew from 6.98 square miles to 11.17 square miles. The, ABC, the ABC's network's broadcast debut of the Disneyland television show on October 27, 1954, was historic for television and the amusement park industry. The first episode was titled The Disneyland Story, and it would be the first time the public would learn about Walt's Magic Kingdom. The show was set in the Disneyland Plans Room. Walt hosted the show and presented a preview of the park. He began with artist Peter Ellen Shaw's aerial drawing of the park from 2,000 feet. Walt then displayed the models for Main Street USA, Sleeping Beauty Castle, The Jungle Cruise, and The Mark Twain. Ward Kimball introduced the Tomorrowland segment with a preview of the Man in Space episode. Director Norman Foster spoke about Davy Crockett and Frontierland, and director Ben Sharpstein presented the plans for Adventureland. The broadcast captured 52% of the viewing audience, which was unheard of for a new television show. Admiral Joseph Fowler was recruited by Walt Disney to lead the park's construction. Fowler had built ships in China prior to World War II and had run the busy San Francisco Navy Yard during the war. He was called Admiral Can-Do by those close to him, and the construction of Disneyland required all of his experience and expertise. One of Joe Fowler's first challenges was making Walt understand the requirements for new construction. Walt was on top of everyone and everything. He learned to read construction plans and was soon an expert. He knew where every pipe was located, the height of each building, and all the details of the park's construction. Walt found it difficult to understand the necessity for certain costly building materials and methods. Walt had imagined Disneyland would be built more like a motion picture set and became frustrated with what he thought was a lack of progress. Walt had to be introduced to occupancy regulations and building codes. 
Harper Goff spent a lot of time explaining to Walt what was going on, but it did not help. Walt constantly visited the construction site, hoping his presence would speed things up. There were challenges that had to be corrected as construction progressed. The original plan called for guests to walk north along Main Street to the Plaza Hub in front of the castle, then proceed in a counterclockwise direction, visiting each of the lands. Tomorrowland was to be located on the west side of the park, so it would be the final stop. Instead, Frontierland and Adventureland had to be placed together because they could then share the water system. This change would enable to use the existing row of eucalyptus trees as a windbreak behind City Hall and as a screen and, and, as, and as to screen the backside of Main Street from the Jungle Cruise. If Walt didn't like what his studio designers came up with, he would do it himself. Hmm. And as in Tom Sawyer Island, he thought his designers had misunderstood the idea. So Walt took home the plans and the next day had it designed the way it appears today. Disneyland would be the first amusement park to have a single entrance. Walt Disney wanted to create a single experience that would be shared by all guests. Before Disneyland, every amusement park and World's Fairs would have multiple entrances with nearby parking. On Main Street, Walt revisited his childhood home of Marceline, Missouri. The design objective was to create a dimensional environment you would experience the same way you watch a movie. The Main Street train depot acts like a marquee. You buy your ticket and then enter the lobby. Passing through the tunnels below the train tracks acts like a cross-dissolve common in movies and gives you a view of Town Square on Main Street. And this heightens your anticipation of what is to come. Your first immersive view is an, is an establishing shot of Town Square, which in, invites you to explore further. Along the eastern edge of Town Square is the Opera House, and it was the first building completed because Admiral Joe Fowler needed the building for an in-house mill. The Opera House was used as the shop for the detailed woodwork installed throughout the park. On the other side of Town Square is City Hall, designed by Harper Goff and based on his hometown of Fort Collins, Colorado. Harper Goff refined and reinterpreted elements from numerous high-style Victorian buildings when designing Main Street USA, rather than copying details. Walt endorsed ideas from Goff and his design team to create an idealized romantic image of the perfect American small-town Main Street. So this explains the narrow width of Main Street USA, about 30 feet, in comparison to typically wider streets of most American towns, including Marceline and Fort Collins. The narrow width of Main Street USA better matched the reduced scale of the buildings proposed by the design team and accepted by Walt. Each building on Main Street with a few exceptions, was designed with floors that diminish in height so as to make them appear taller than they really are, so Main Street would not feel too large or impersonal. The exceptions to this forced perspective technique are the Main Street Opera House, which is designed to be full-sized to prevent potential visual intrusions from Tomorrowland to the east, and the Main Street train station because the upper floor is used by guests and also to block the view of the castle from the main entrance to the park. Walt had the storefront windows on Main Street placed closer to the ground rather than would be period, um, rather than what would be period correct to enable children to see inside the shops. The narrow corridor of Main Street would frame Sleeping Beauty Castle. The contrast of a traditional American Main Street ending with a medieval castle became what Walt Disney called a weenie. Placing a highly visible architectural object at the end of a view would draw guests further into the park and into each land. Walt learned this trick when he noticed that animal trainers would use hot dogs to motivate, motivate the animal actors. 
Harper Goff found himself doing a lot of hand-holding with the construction workers, especially in Adventureland, as they learned how to build a world of fantasy. Most of them had built convention building, conventional buildings, such as schools, hospitals, office buildings, and warehouses. Now they worked from blueprints for African ruins, native huts, and ancient shrines along a riverbed. They needed constant direction and reassurance from Harper Goff. The only attraction in Adventureland would be a cruise down the jungle rivers of the world. The adventures in Adventureland hadn't always been set in the jungle. One of the original ideas was for a cruise down American rivers like the Swanee, but Harper Goff's favorite film, The African Queen, starring Humphrey Bogart and Katharine Hepburn, inspired the concept of a tropical jungle cruise that the public would find more exciting. Using a sandbox that simulated the jungle cruise footprint layout, Harper used his foot to sculpt the sand into the shapes of the river and its banks, locating the landmarks along the way. Workers would then replicate these forms using bulldozers and shovels. Walt and Harper wanted to use live animals for the jungle cruise, but zoologists convinced them this was impractical, as most of the animals would be asleep when the park was open. Walt was not discouraged. Since his special effects department had created a lifelike squid for 20,000 leagues under the sea, it shouldn't be that difficult to create lifelike elephants, crocodiles, hippos, and monkeys that would be awake when needed. Staging the animals in or near the brush would conceal the tracks and mechanical controls necessary to animate the animals. Most of the animals were built and tested at the studio. Some of the larger ones were built at the park. A 900-mechanical-pound elephant was delivered the night before the park opened and installed in the dark because a night watchman inadvertently switched off the work lights. One of the greatest challenges in Adventureland was creating a believable living humid jungle able to survive in the arid Southern California climate. Bill Evans had visited real tropical jungles and found them to be both endlessly monotonous and spectacular. Evans decided to create a Hollywood jungle with the type of plants we imagine to be in the jungle. Evans saved many giant palm trees from the bulldozers of the advancing Southern California freeway system and created a jungle canopy that would have taken years to grow. He also used the uprooted orange trees from the site and buried them upside down and placed bromelades in their roots to simulate exotic plant life. Disneyland would become one of the more diverse botanical gardens in the United States. Approximately 90% of the plant material was non-indigenous to, Cal to California, with specimens from Australia, Mexico, Europe, and Asia. Evans depleted nurseries from Santa Barbara to San Diego. They spent $400,000 on 1,200 full-size trees and 9,000 shrubs. Wow. Bill also contributed some show writing to the park when Walt asked him to put fancy Latin names on the patches of weeds in the unfinished portions of the park in the days leading up to the opening. Evans recalled the time when he had planted a pepper tree beside the Plaza Pavilion restaurant. Walt, Joe Fowler, and Bill Evans were walking by the restaurant when Walt turned to Fowler and asked, Joe, that tree looks a little close to the walkway, doesn't it? Fowler then turned to Evans and asked, How about moving that tree, Bill? Evans moved the 10-ton tree about 10 feet back overnight. Wow. The next day, as the men walked past the same spot, Evans said, Walt didn't say a word. He just smiled. <laughs> now it's called getting things done. take it a year and a half to move that tree. <laughs> <laughs> Walt's plans for Frontierland would transport guests to Frontier America from the Revolutionary War era to the final taming of the Great Southwest. In its early days, Frontierland offered rides, guests rides aboard stagecoaches, Conestona wagons, and pack mules exploring the backwoods of the lands. Guests could refresh themselves at the Golden Horseshoe Saloon, home of the wildest show in the West, and, and it occupied approximately one-third of the area of the park. 
The Golden Horseshoe Saloon had the authentic feel of an 1840s saloon and was an exact copy from the dance hall featured in the film Calamity Jane. Harper Goff was the set designer for both projects. The saloon was named after the authentic Golden Horseshoe in New York. Artwork featured paintings from Charles M. Russell, Frederick Remington, and 15 sets of Texas Longhorns. Over time, Walt would adopt the stage left box at the Golden Horseshoe as his own. The biggest attraction would be a scenic journey down the rivers of America aboard the Mark Twain Sternwheeler. On one of Walt's walkthroughs of the Frontierland construction site, it brought on another case of Walt's woes. Walt had been horrified by the amount of cement being used for the construction of Main Street and Adventureland, and was shocked by the amount of excavation required for the rivers of America. He was especially startled by the dry dock for the Mark Twain that Joe Fowler insisted on building for the Mark Twain. By the time you get through with that damn ditch, we won't have any land left, said Walt. (laughs) For a long time, Walt called it Joe's Ditch. In a final sarcastic jab, Walt officially named it Fowler's Harbor. Oh, my gosh. Walt felt so strongly about the construction of the Mark Twain that when corporate funding fell short for its building, Disney paid for the construction out of his own pocket. Walt's Queen of the River was the first paddle wheeler built in the United States in 50 years. A local shipbuilding facility constructed the 105-foot hull, and the upper decks were built at the Disney Studio to form a 5-8 scale 159-ton replica of a steamboat. That was Todd's shipyard where they built it. Mm-hmm. Is that shipyard still around? Oh, yeah. You can see it when you go over the Vincent Thomas Bridge. It's right there. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. In fact, people who went on the um, on cruises out of San Pedro would have been right by it. So. Oh, Okay. Oh, well, then when we were, when we did our Panama Canal cruise on a Disney Magic, we saw it. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Thank you. Finally, Fill the River Day arrived, and the massive pressure valves were turned, and a torrent of water rushed into the riverbed of the rivers of America and promptly leaked into the sandy soil. <laughs> the, the gooey soil stabilizer that had been used to avoid this problem worked on earthen dams, but not on the sandy orange grove soil. Fowler quickly located a source of clay, and truckloads were brought in to line the rivers of America. On the next Fill the River Day, it was leak-proof. Fill the River Day? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For Main Street and Frontierland, there was a critical need for a herd of Disney horses and ponies. Walt invited horse exhibitor Owen Pope and his wife Dolly to the studio and explained his plans for Disneyland. The Pope soon took up residence on the studio lot where Owen began building a miniature ranch of horse stalls, wagons, and coaches. When the park's construction began, the Popes permanently moved to the site and created a pony farm. By opening day, Disneyland had a herd of 200 horses, ponies, and mules, ready and mostly willing and able to work. The mules lived up to their reputation of being stubborn. (laughs) Meanwhile, over at Fantasyland, Bruce Bruce Bushman's herd of horses was being prepared. Bushman's herd of 55 horses was born in Germany and were 60 to 80 years old. They were the classic hand-carved wooden carousel species that had been brought from Coney Island to Disneyland and carefully restored and installed on Fantasyland's King Arthur Carousel. The carousel was originally built in 1922 by the Denzel Company. Some horses are redesigned for Disneyland so they would all be running, and the carousel was augmented with more antique horses to make a fourth row in addition to the original three. The carriages were removed from the carousel and used as the basis for the train cars on the Casey Jr. Circus train. That's cool. Yeah. Who'd have thought, you know? Reuse, recycle. Yeah, but they used everything. (laughs) 
Bushman, who had been assigned by Walt to develop other Fantasyland attractions, was a large, husky man. Walt decided his proportions would be the pattern for all seats at the park. If it fits <laughs> you, Bruce, it'll fit anybody, Walt had <laughs> declared. Will you fit on the Matterhorn right now? <laughs> Probably not. So all seats in the park were more than ample for one adult and a child. For Bushman, Fantasyland was a land constantly changing. Casey Jr. Circus Train was originally designed to be Disneyland's first roller coaster, weaving through the hills surrounding Fantasyland. Due to the potential maintenance concerns, the concept was reworked. When the Casey Jr. Circus Train chugged up its first test hill, the little train that could, couldn't, and tipped backward, necessitating oh. a grade change from 45% to 25%. As a result of the regrading, the attraction didn't open until three months after the grand opening of the park. Mr. Rhodes, Mr. Toad's wild ride had to be tamed to be less wild. Also originally conceived as a roller coaster ride, it was made less threatening because Walt was concerned adults wouldn't ride a too thrilling white knuckle toad ride. <laughs> less threatening, but you end up in hell? Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> Two attractions competed for the same spot in Fantasyland. One was a Monstro the Whale Shoot the Shoots boat ride. The other was a crocodile aquarium where guests would walk through the animal's mouth and view an aquarium of exotic fish. Walt considered which would be more fun, being eaten by Pinocchio's Monstro the Whale or Peter Pan's Crocodile. Monstro won, and he continues to consume boatloads of guests on the storybook land canal boats. That's cool. The boats themselves are reminiscent of the canal boats in Walt's original plans for a Mickey Mouse park. Walt wanted guests' experience in Fantasyland to be a dream come true for everyone who is young at heart. The Fantasyland Dark Rides, Peter Pan's Flight, Snow White's Adventures, and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride received a touch of magic from Claude Coates' Magic Touch with Color. The attractions are called dark rides because of their extensive use of dark light and make specially painted scenes glow with an eerie luminescence. Coates had given beautiful moods of color to all the backgrounds of Disney's animated classic films, and Walt asked them to give this same sense of mood and emotion to the Fantasyland attractions. The attractions were given the Coates touch of fluorescent colors that lifted them far beyond anything ever achieved in the scenic medium at the time. The Mad Tea Party was designed and constructed by Arrow Development in Mountain View, California. The first test of the attraction didn't happen until June 1955, and then the attraction had to be shipped down to Disneyland and have final testing completed. Dumbo also had its share of problems. It was originally developed as a takeoff on the pink elephant sequence of the 1941 film, but the concept was rethought when it was decided the segment might be too scary for small children. The original motor that drove the attraction couldn't handle the first elephants tested on the attraction as they weighed too much. So after some reworking, the system did begin working but did not debut until August 1955. Sleeping Beauty Castle, the entrance to Fantasyland, was the center of a great debate as it lay on the drawing board. As was commonly used in other designs throughout the park, forced perspective would be used to create the illusion the towers were much taller than reality. The castle stones would start with large ones at the bottom and be gradually reduced to small ones at the top of the towers. Inspired by King Ludwig's Neuschwanstein Castle in Bavaria, several wed designers under the direction of Herb Ryman had created a smaller facsimile for Disneyland. Herb Ryman was displeased with copying a famous European landmark. When working on the original drawings for the castle, he was in a hurry to get the drawings ready for potential Disneyland investors and used King Ludwig's castle as a reference because he happened to have reference material on that castle handy. He later tried to talk Walt into diversifying the design and pulling in additional references. One day, as the designers were arguing, Ryman pointed out that the Bavarian castle in the Disneyland design faced backwards. 
Moving the model pieces around like chess pieces, Ryman picked up the top of the castle, turned it around, and placed it back down with the turrets facing Main Street. As the debate raged on, the model remained as it was with Ryman's changes. Walt walked into the room and liked the model. The debate came to an end. Hmm. Sleeping Beauty's castle, which was originally referred to as Fantasyland Castle, then Snow White's castle, after Walt's original princess, which explains its Romanesque proportions and detailing. But the, but the film Sleeping Beauty was in production at the time, and Walt saw the opportunity to use Disneyland to promote the upcoming film. The tall golden spire on the castle, which looks stylistically different from the rest of the castle's architecture, has a grounding in historical fact. It was added to the design at Walt's request after he heard a story during a tour of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. It is a replica of a spire added to Notre Dame in the mid-1800s, about 500 years after the completion of the cathedral's original construction, as an improvement to the original architecture. Another unique structure planned for Fantasyland was a giant rock candy mountain. John Hench, who was assigned to the project, gathered his henchmen, as they were called, <laughs> and created a large skeletal structure for the model of the mountain. They planned on a kind of solidified marshmallow cream for the snow and chocolate for the rock outcroppings. They used a huge assortment of real candy bars, gumdrops, and other sweets for the model's surface. The more they worked, the more unappealing it looked. It was positively nauseating, said Hench. <laughs> And worst of all, because our building didn't have air conditioning, the whole mountain began to melt. We had to leave the door open and try to ventilate the place to get rid of the odor. It was like a dying candy factory. Then the smell began to attract dozens of birds flying in and out of the building, pecking away at our mountain. Walt quietly abandoned the rock candy mountain. <laughs> but a model of it may be seen today... A replica of it may be seen today in the window of Trolley Treats on Buena Vista oh, Street my gosh. in yep. Disney California Adventure. Walt described Tomorrowland as where you will actually experience what many of America's foremost men of science and industry predict for the world of tomorrow, set in the world of 1986, which was the year for the next passing of Halley's Comet. However, with time and money running out, most of the Disneyland team believed the best thing that could be done for Tomorrowland was to put up some exciting posters of things to come for this land in future years. Walt had other ideas and was determined to get at least some portion of Tomorrowland open for the nationally televised grand opening. With less than six months before the park's grand opening, work was begun on attractions for Tomorrowland. To save time and money, the proposed dancing fountains and moving sidewalks at the entrance were eliminated. Towering above Tomorrowland, the rocket to the moon would launch guests on a journey into space and back to Earth. Space Station X-1 would invite guests to circle the Earth from 50 miles up for a satellite view of the United States. Keep in mind we had no satellites in orbit at that time. The world beneath us would be explored in a fast-paced animated history of man's quest for energy. Of all the Tomorrowland attractions, Walt believed Utopia was the most important to have running for the television cameras. Those at home would see Hollywood stars and other celebrities driving past cameras in miniature Utopia sports cars instead of the usual Rolls-Royce and Cadillac convoys of gala premieres. According to Roger Brogy, the original purpose of Utopia was to give young children a place where they could learn to drive safely, with the idea they would later drive safely on the rapidly growing freeway system. The Utopia roadways were laid out like freeways with twisting clover leaves and overpasses. Brogy's machine shop, with the guidance of Bob Gurr, designed and manufactured 36 miniature automobiles each powered by lawnmower-type gasoline engines. The studio then brought in young test drivers, including Brogy's children. After 10 days, 10 cars were left. In mm. Instead of learning to drive safely, the children took demented delight in chasing and <laughs> crashing into one another. 
The cars fared better after Brogy installed huge spring-like bumpers surrounding each car. The goal of teaching safe driving to children was forgotten. <laughs> Another Tomorrowland attraction was the Circarama Theater that presented a film on a screen totally surrounding the audience. A June 27, 1955 press release described the new process, an advanced motion picture development Circarama consisting of a continuous image focused on a 360-degree screen will be introduced at Disneyland Park on July 17th by American Motors Corporation, the pr producers of Hudson, Nash, and Rambler Automobiles and Kelvinator Appliances. Boy, those are all names from the past. Oh, yeah, they are. <laughs> the press release detailed the new film system and concluded with, This combination of photographic skills and entertainment talent talents promises an unusual spectacle for visitors to Disneyland. We're happy to have a part to play in making Circarama possible, as it represents added pleasure and value for the public. Sponsorship of the Circarama is another forward step in our program to make American Motors mean more for Americans, said George Romney, president of American Motors. The relationship that developed between Disney, American Motors, Kodak, Richfield, Kaiser Aluminum, TWA, Monsanto, and other sponsors grew from mutual desire. The companies were banking on their association with Disney and public exposure at Disneyland that would enhance their image and sales. The sponsorship provided Walt Disney with badly needed funds to continue his development of Disneyland and new forms of entertainment. After seeing the Circarama system at the Hollywood Pantages Theater, Disney called Roger Brogy and Eustace Lysette, a special effects and lens expert, to his office. If they can put three screens together, why can't we do a full circle? Walt asked. Brogy and his team, which included a Byworks, worked to fit 11 16mm cameras together. Film art director Peter Allen Shaw was tasked with creating a documentary auto tour of the western United States with a Circarama cameras strapped to the top of an American Motors Rambler. The trip was beset with problems. On the way to Utah's Monument Valley, the first good bump sent the camera system lurching forward. Finding smooth roads in the desert was impossible. Finding scenery beautiful in a 360-degree sweep was just as difficult. Ellen Shaw would come upon magnificent mesas and buttes on one side with a flat, dull desert and electric power lines on the other. Ellen Shaw and his crew drove the car at 15 to 20 miles per hour, but when they reached Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles, they wanted to create the illusion of a high-speed chase. So they slowed the speed at which the film traveled through the camera. This meant that fewer frames of film were shot, and when these fewer frames were projected at normal speed, everything appeared to be racing by. The Wilshire race became the major highlight of a unique film experience that thrilled audiences. Ken Anderson had just finished working on the Fantasyland attractions when he found himself working in Tomorrowland. Only two weeks before opening, he got a call from Walt Disney. Walt wanted to get the giant squid from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea installed in the Tomorrowland exhibit of the film set and artwork. Ken, I've just got to get the squid in there alive and operating, Walt said. The problem was, in the film, the squid had dozens of people serving as puppet masters to operate its cables, wires, and pulleys. Ken needed to find another way to have the squid move its tentacles. Firstly, the squid had to be restored. The original skin had been hacked to pieces by the sailors in the film's grand fight <laughs> on the deck of the Nautilus. It was one of the quickest jobs ever undertaken for Disneyland. On Monday, the order to restore the squid was given by Anderson. On Friday, the squid was being installed at Disneyland with an eight-cylinder wow. Hudson engine inside to power the squid's animation and a new skin. It was tight, but the squid wasn't quite ready for opening day and opened almost three weeks later. One of the structures built was a beautiful white bandstand set in the middle of Town Square in Main Street, USA. 
It was large enough for a 16-piece band and perfect for a Victorian-era town center. One Sunday, Walt was looking at the bandstand and said, There's something damned wrong with where that bandstand now is. Walt did not like how the bandstand blocked the view of the train station from Sleeping Beauty Castle. The bandstand was moved to the opposite end of Main Street, west of the castle. A 65-foot flagpole was installed in place of the bandstand at the center of town square. Walt paid $5 for the base of a flagpole found at the scene of an auto accident on Wilshire Boulevard where a car had run into a lamppost. Hmm. Since the first spark of the idea of the park, which would later evolve into Disneyland, each design concept held one common feature. It would be surrounded by a train. The first designs of the park included a live railroad that circled the park, and that part of the design was kept to the finished product. The Disneyland Railroad was inspired by Walt Disney's love for trains and his live steam backyard Carrollwood Pacific Railroad, a love he shared with Disney animators Ward Kimball and Ollie Johnston. In 1953, the Walt Disney Company solicited major railroads for corporate sponsorship of the attraction. The Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway was the only company to respond. The Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe sponsorship offered offset construction and fabrication costs, and it opened and operated as the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad. Unlike most of Disneyland and its arrangement with its sponsors, the Disneyland Railroad, as well as the Mark Twain Riverboat, was entirely owned and operated by Walt Disney himself as owner, president, and sole proprietor of Retlaw, which was Walter spelled backwards, incorporated privately for the operation. He mortgaged his Palm Springs property, Smoke Tree Ranch, to finance the construction of the Mark Twain. The railroad and riverboat crew worked directly for Walt, and he personally autographed their paychecks. The train originally consisted solely of custom-built 5.8 scale equipment. The Walt Disney Company constructed the original two locomotives in the roundhouse at Disneyland, which was then located west of Holidayland, under the supervision of Roger E. Brogy from the studio's machine shop. They were patterned after the Lily Bell, a miniature steam locomotive Brogy had made for Walt's backyard, Carrollwood Pacific Railroad. These were also models of classic Wild West American, Wild West style American 440s, but built to be larger 5.8 scale. Number one was given a big wood-burning diamond stack and a large pointed pilot cowcatcher, while number two was given a straight cap stack and smaller pilot common to East Coast coal-burning locomotives. Initially, the Disneyland Railroad was to use a smaller scale of locomotives. Walt's good friend, Southern Pacific engineer Billy Jones, refused to sell him locomotive, the number two, um, a 1905 product. Um, Jones ran one of the trains on opening day. The number two, known more affectionately as the two spot, still runs at Oak Meadows Park in Los Gatos, California, on the nonprofit Billy Jones Wildcat Railroad. The C.K. Holiday was built at the Walt Disney Studio in 1954 and went into service at Disneyland on opening day on 1955 and was named for Cyrus Kurtz Holiday, the founder of the Santa Fe Railroad in 1859. The E.P. Ripley was also built by the Walt Disney Studios in 1954 and went into service at Disneyland on opening day in 1955. It was named for Edward Payson Ripley, an early president of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe after its 1895 reorganization. Work on the Disneyland Railroad also progressed in sound stages at the studio as studio carpenters built the cars for the trains and some of the stages. Some were designed as passenger cars, others as freight cars. Not all work was done at the studio. Work was also in progress at Disneyland. Workers were laying out the track and building the Main Street and Frontierland stations for the Disneyland trains to make stops at. The passenger train would be pulled by the E.P. Ripley and stop only at Main Street, whilst the freight train would be pulled by the C.K. Holiday and only stopped at Frontierland. <coughs> 
passing tracks were located at the stations to facilitate continuous running. The passenger train was made up of coaches, while the freight train was made up of gondolas and stock cars with standing room only. The Santa Fe Railway offered the use of full-scale crossing signals for the railroad, but Disney declined as they would be out of scale with the trains. So these scaled-down replicas were designed and built by the Santa Fe Railway San Bernardino shops as a gift to Disneyland. They operate with automotive windshield wiper motors. Three more locomotives were later acquired from outside sources since this was cheaper than building new ones, and and many narrow-gauge lines were closing down and selling their equipment. The locomotives are all products of the famed Baldwin Locomotive Works in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. All three were given extensive renovations before entering service, including new boilers. Number three and the new number five are Forney locomotives, a type of tank locomotive, as an 1894 product of Baldwin, number three is the oldest locomotive in service at any Disney property and is also the most difficult to fire. The financial squeeze of Disneyland's budget was haunting Joe Fowler. I didn't know a damn thing about what we were getting into. At groundbreaking, I had a budget of $4.5 million. That was before we had any plans at all. Two months later, in September, it went up to $7 million. In November, it was up to $11 million. Wow. We, we were still talking $11 million in April when I was walking down Main Street with Roy and a representative from Bank of America who scanned the project and said it looked closer to $15 million. But by the time opening day had arrived, we had spent $17 million. Yeah. Fowler could not be held responsible for the increasing costs. The Disneyland site had record rainfall in early 1955 that created flooding in many of the areas. There were also labor strike problems. Orange County's hot asphalt plants were shut down and picketed. um, For the last of Disneyland's roads, Fowler had to haul asphalt from San Diego at enormous costs. There was a plumber's strike that left the park with a shortage of drinking fountains on opening day. As the opening day drew near, most key Disney personnel lived near the park and worked from dawn until late evening. Walt Disney was living in the park in his apartment on Main Street above the firehouse, which was part of the original design for the park. For July 4, 1955, Walt thought it was time to show off Disneyland to some of the studio employees in the hopes of alleviating some of their concerns and reassuring them the boss was not going crazy. (laughs) The private dining room at the studio was named the Penthouse Club and was located on the top floor of the animation building. Membership was limited to senior members of the studio staff. Members and their families were invited to a holiday picnic at Disneyland on July 4th. The party was going to feature a ride on the Mark Twain and the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad. The two stream trains were fired up with Walt as engineer for the CK Holiday and Ward Kimball for the E.P. Ripley. Attendees rode the trains and the Mark Twain, looked at how the construction was going, ate a picnic lunch, and left when the sun went down. Walt decided to celebrate his 30th wedding anniversary on July 13, 1955, by throwing an elaborate party in the Golden Horseshoe Saloon with a voyage on the Mark Twain around Rivers of America. The entertainment was the debut performance of the Golden Horseshoe Review, described in a press release as an Old West stage show with comedy and singing in a 30-minute production starring comedian Wally Bogue, songstress Betty Taylor, tenor Fulton Burley, and the Golden Horseshoe Girls. Sailing on the Mark Twain that night made Joe Fowler very nervous. The night before, he dreamt the river had once again sprung a leak and gone dry. (laughs) Plus, the Mark Twain had not yet been fully tested. Fowler slipped away from the party an hour before the planned excursion and walked to the ship's landing for a final inspection. There he ran into a woman frantically sweeping wood shavings from the deck. Handing the surprised Admiral a broom, she said, Come on, hurry, let's get this thing cleaned up. (laughs) 
Together, Fowler and Walt's wife Lillian cleaned up the Mark Twain oh. race maiden voyage. <laughs> My gosh. Wow. <laughs> Walt's daughter Diane once remarked this party may have been one of the happiest days in her father's life. As the evening ended, she asked her father if she could drive him home. He said, well, sure, honey. As he climbed into the back seat of the car, she said, he had a map of Disneyland. He rolled it up and tooted in my ear as with a toy trumpet. As she drove, the car grew silent. Diane looked at the back seat and her father was sound asleep with his arms folded around the map like a boy with a toy trumpet. Oh, Disaster. I never heard that story before, Michael. (laughs) Yeah, and she said, and the very next day at dawn, he was out the door on his way back to Disneyland. Wow. (laughs) Now, disaster did not befall the Mark Twain on its maiden voyage that night, as Admiral Joe Fowler had feared. It waited until opening day, (laughs) which we will relive in my next segment of 60 Years of Disneyland. (laughs) Oh, this is so cool. There are so many stories about the construction of Disneyland. I mean, it's really amazing. So, um, I mean, when you think about just what went into that park, because it had never been done before. Right. You know, it's it, it really is daunting. I think about it every time, you know, I walk down Main Street thinking, you know, this, you know, this is the, this was the first of its kind. You yeah. Know? And and the vision that that Walt Disney had and the passion he had to make it happen because even you know so so many times when somebody gets started and they run into these pitfalls or whatever you know and people will throw their hands up and say oh you know forget it or it can't be done but he that wasn't in his vocabulary no not at all and you know there's always the story that um you you never said no to him you always said yes. But if we, and then you just added it in. Yes, we can do that if we do this. And then you always had to give him a counter proposal or, well, yes, we can do this if you, and then you had to throw in all the enormous things that would go into the project in order to accomplish what Walt wanted. But you never said no to him. Amazing. Very cool, Michael. Thank you. You're welcome. That is going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.